if you would please, to Jonah. We are on the last chapter, right? Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4, I'm going to bring us where we were ended last week and then get down to where Jonah basically said, I'd rather die than to see these other people repent. Many people look at that and say, how in the world could they be that way? The reality is, in some sense, we're all that way. I've heard God needs to take that guy behind the woodshed. How many have heard something of the sort like that? Wait till God gets a hold of you. God needs to get a hold of that guy's heart. Are all these phrases normal phrases that we hear in our Christendom? Yes or no? Yeah. Problem is God needs to go with this heart. He might need to be in their heart also, but first and foremost, he needs to work on this heart. Unfortunately, we become so pharisaical that in order for us to look better, we have to condemn other people or look at other people as they're worse off. Reality is, this guy needs to worry about how bad this Christian is. Not about anybody else. That is certainly a truth we can learn from Jonah. A principle. Last week, towards the end of the sermon, we talked about why, why is Jonah like this? Why in the world? I told you that I had always believed that Jonah could not understand God's promise of a peaceful kingdom for Israel, and yet he gives mercy to Israel's enemy. This doesn't make sense to me, and it didn't make sense to Jonah. Jonah and Noah are, uh, (laughs) right? Keep saying Noah. When I say Noah, just think Jonah, all right? Last week when I read from someone who articulated so much better than I, Mr. Youngblood said it this way, from Jonah's point of view, the clemency God showed Nineveh jeopardized God's covenant with Israel, which created a conflict of interest between his promises to Israel and the breadth of his mercy. And that's exactly, exactly correct and stated very well. Jonah, he was angry and still is, and probably still is today maybe for all we know. We don't know where Jonah is. We have no idea. But Jonah did not want to see Nineveh repent for sure. He hated them, no question. But when we get to chapter 4, That anger against Nineveh has now been replaced for an anger against God. 
That's where we're at in chapter 4. Jonah is angry at God. Just like, and I wouldn't say we can find in Joel or in Moses or in Job, many facets. Probably, it, we don't know all the stories of these men and women in Scripture, correct? But I would bet, I would bet that if we knew all of the stories, all of them at some point would question why God does things. How come you gave mercy to them and I'm still in rags? How many understand that? Or how come you judge me and, and discipline me, but yet they get off scot-free? There's not a person in here who hasn't had those thoughts. These are the thoughts of Jonah. And if you would go to Joel, he understands the mercy of God. He understands the judgment of God. And Joel is beside himself saying, Lord, please. And, and, and we can see this in Exodus chapter 32, which we just read with Moses. In Exodus chapter 34, and in Joel, and in um, Nahum, I believe. The point is, these guys are all arguing about the mercy and justice of God. Where do they come together? How do they come together? And who decides when they come together? Because the reality is, we're not God. Well, let me ask you, does God promise that he will judge all sinners or sin? Yes or no? Absolutely. Has that happened yet? No. Does God promise that there will be a time when he separates the sheep from the goat and the goats will spend eternity in hell with Satan? Yes or no? There is a judgment coming. So it's not a matter of if he will judge or not. It's a matter of when he will judge. And that's exactly the same thing with Jonah. Is God going to judge Nineveh? Is God going to wipe Nineveh off the face of the earth? Absolutely he is. In eight or 600 and something B.C., he does it. Nahum talks about it. Wipes him off. I think it's Nahum chapter 2, I think. Joel, on the other hand, had the same problem, but in opposite. Joel's problem was, I know this, this country. Joel is just like us today, by the way. Joel recognized this country of Judah is ugly. It is nasty. It is wicked. It is sinful. And God is a God of justice, and he will judge this. But Lord, you're also a God of mercy, so please have mercy, please. How many get that? That's exactly what Joel was doing. Jonah was saying the same thing. God, these people are wicked. They are attacking your people. You, these are the enemies of your people. You need to judge them. And then he says, oh, but you had mercy on them because you're a God of mercy. He also was struggling between justice and mercy. And to be honest, these stories in Nahum and in Joel and in, and in Exodus and in Jonah, all of these stories are practically realized in our lives every single day. Because we don't know when the mercy is going to come or the justice is going to come. Amen? God is going to judge. He, let me ask you, is God going to discipline His children? Yes or no? Yes, absolutely. 
That's God's justice. Why is, that go- Why is he going to discipline? Why do you discipline your children? Because you love them. He is going to discipline Christians that are wayward. That is his justice. He also forgives and comforts and graces us and mercifies us, if you will. Why? Because God is a God of mercy. How many love the mercy part? Oh, come on. How many love the mercy part of God? But when it comes to us, how many love the justice part of God? How many get this? How many are following the practical implications of this text? Interestingly, Jonah expresses his frustration with God's character. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Now, did Jonah say that? Did Jonah say something like that? He did say something like that. No, this comes from Exodus chapter 34. It's Moses saying the exact same thing. Jonah just is repeating Moses, but then leaving some of the stuff out. How many have ever done that on verses? Whether it's intentional or not, I cannot know. But I will tell you, all of us do that. We try to get the sense of the text, right? By the way, this is an important, I'm going to stop and say this. This is very important. Many times we memorize Scripture. Is it good to memorize Scripture? Yes or no? Certainly is. But I will tell you this. If you memorize words and not content, you're doing yourself a misservice. I have family members that will spit back verses and then do the exact opposite. Immediately. Why? Oh, this is the word, but I really don't know what it says. Does that make sense? When you memorize, please, I beg of you, when you have your kids memorize Scripture, make sure they understand what the text is saying and not memorizing just words. Does that make sense? It's so important. Regardless, Jonah doesn't say word for word Exodus 34, but he gives the sense for sure. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren on the third and fourth generations. What does that mean? God's justice is real. It will happen, but it's His timing, not ours. That's what that's saying. And it's exact, that's from Exodus 34. We read 32 this week. Next week we're going to read 34. And hopefully there's this, wow, okay, now I get it. There's a lot of back and forth here. But for our lives, it's the exact same thing. Your sin will be disciplined. God will discipline his own. It's not just in Jonah. It's not just in Exodus. It's in multiple other ones. And here are the words. We're just going to jump to the words that are used here. These attributes of God, the graciousness and compassionate. It carries the idea of 
favor, especially towards those who are disadvantaged. The second related to the now womb refers to the maternal concern. Have you ever understood, men, the love of a mother with her children? You ever notice that? I know the teenagers do with my wife sitting in the class with me. When, when, when Frida talks about her children, her, her eyes start to, to well up because she loves them so much. That's why you're staying here till the snow stops. Right? <laughs> Regardless, a mother's, there's something special that we guys just do not get. Ladies, it's okay to say amen. It really is. It's a blind spot in us men many times. But the regardless, the, the, and it, the, the scripture is playing on that dynamic, by the way, when he says, gracious and compassionate. God is that way to us. God loves you dearly, He cares for you immensely. There is no wickedness in his heart. It's a pure love. And, God, and Joel, Jonah is expressing this gracious and compassionate. But the question is, who is he gracious and compassionate to? Well, Jonah thinks what? What does Jonah think? To me in Israel. But not to anyone else. Well, I will tell you this, praise God, God is a God of compassion and a God of graciousness to even the Gentiles. Amen? And that's the point here. The second pair of attributes is not only is he gracious and compassionate, but he's slow to anger and full of mercy. Slow to anger, anger means this. How many know what this word means? Does anybody know what the Hebrew word means? You will like this. How many of you have ever, and I'm going to use this bad illustration, how many have ever heard of the Avengers? And a guy named the Hulk. Listen, back in the 70s, I knew of Hulk and 80s. What does is, what is the Hulk do with his nose? How many have seen that? He gets mad, and his nose just he breathes in really hard. How many understand what I'm talking about? That's literally what that means. Slow to anger is long in the nose. <laughs> it means it's this flaring of the nose. Slow to anger. And full of mercy. Long in nostrils with reference to the visible flaring of the nostrils. In essence, what he's trying to say here, first of all, is he's saying that God doesn't get long in the nostrils? So there's a woke movement within the church that is wicked. And they would say, absolutely not. No, the Bible says he's slow to anger. You cannot say that he doesn't get angry. It says slow to anger. 
That means what? That means he is... Uh, uh, he's not easily angered. It takes a lot to move him to anger. By the way, was God angry with Nineveh? Yes or no? The text says so. Yes. Nahum will talk about it also. Jonah certainly talks about it. But God is slow to anger. He doesn't fly off the handle. He isn't like what my uncle calls the boiling teapot. Where he blows the cap. By the way, this is the same term here, anger, that's found in Jonah's earlier prayer, full of mercy and anger. So he is, he is a God of, he doesn't just quick, he, and by the way, this is a good principle for us. He is angry, but he's not going to judge them yet. Let me ask you, when you're angry and you judge your child or discipline their child, is that a right time or a bad time? It's usually a bad time, right? Think about it, pray about it, and then deal the punishment. It's not that the child isn't going to be punished. It's that how and when is that child going to be punished? It's the same thing with God. It's not that Nineveh is not going to get punished for their evilness. They are. It's just going to take a little bit. God has a different timing than we do. The last attribute we find in the text is that it serves as the climax of the description of God's character. God's readiness to relent concerning punishment. This comes directly from what we just read, what Tim just read in Exodus 32. Moses said to God, turn your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Why did he ask God to do that? Because he knows that God is a God of mercy. Instead of saying, man, that guy needs his just due, we should say, we need to go to him with God's mercy. Right? He needs to have that mercy. And he will never have that mercy unless I give him the gospel. Unless I tell him about Jesus. The phrase also recalls the final lines of the king of Nineveh. In chapter 3, let's repent so that God may relent and recover from his intense anger. <laughs> so Jonah's version here, as you, and, and by the way, I encourage you, please, read Exodus chapter 32 through Exodus chapter 34. You are finding the exact same thing that here Moses is begging God not to be, not to put judgment on all his people, but to relent, to have mercy on them. And Jonah's doing the exact opposite with what he believes is Israel's enemies. Does that make sense? There are two changes to this narrative. Joel and Jonah are both doing the same thing, and we talked about this last week. Joel says, 
that you are a gracious and a compassionate God. You're slow to anger and full of mercy. And Joel's saying, remember God, that's who you are. That's who we want the whole world to know who you are. So don't judge us here in Judah for our wickedness. By the way, we can say that same prayer today for the U.S. Americans. This place is a wicked cesspool of nastiness. And God will bring America to its knees. Joel is saying, you're a compassionate God, you're slow to anger, you're full of mercy. And then he ends it by saying, in Joel chapter 2, this is, and who relents from punishment. Why did he add relents from punishment? Why did Joel add relents from punishment? He doesn't want Judah punished. Jonah says the exact same thing. Who relents from punishment. But is that in the positive or the negative? It's in the negative because in this case, he relents from punishing Nineveh. And in Jonah's eyes, that's negative. By the way, what happens to Joel? What does God do to Judah? What does our Bible say? We should all know this. This is Sunday school material, right? God takes Judah and puts them where? In Babylon. He does not relent from punishment. He gives it to them. What does he do to Nineveh? He relents from judging them then and waits till 600 and something B.C. and then judges them. So Joel and Jonah reflect the same version of the confession, but each has a different context. But it's interesting that they both use and who relents from punishment. Joel did so as an expression of hope intended to motivate Judah's repentance, and Jonah did it because he was mad that they actually did repent, and God didn't judge them like he thought they should be judged. Now, all of that to say this. Then Jonah does something worse. And frankly, he does the same thing Moses does. Do you remember hearing, take my name out of the book? What does that mean? Take my name out of the book. That's what Moses said in Exodus chapter 32. What is he saying? Let me die for them. Jonah's saying the same thing, but in opposite. Let me die or let them die. I'm going to give you a bargain, God. Let me die if you're going to keep your promise about not judging them right now. Or if you're not going to judge them, just let me die. Is he making a, trying to make a deal with God? In this text, he is. In the Hebrew, he certain, certainly is. He says, please take my life. This is a complaint. Take my life. Jonah prefers death to life in a world where Israel's enemies are absolved by Israel's God. Jonah is issuing God an ultimatum, an attempt to force 
God to choose between Nineveh and Jonah. Either destroy them or destroy me. Youngblood rightfully states, he says, Jonah used his life as a bargaining chip. Why? Believing that Yahweh will give in rather than to kill his prophet or risk jeopardizing the covenant he has made with Israel. That's Jonah's mentality. Once again, the context of Moses intercedes, or Moses' intercession with God in 32 through 34 is exactly where Jonah is at. In 32, 32, he said, Jonah laid his life on the line, begging God to pardon Israel. So Jonah lays his life on the line when begging God to destroy Nineveh. Jonah's real goal is not death. What's Jonah's real goal? The judging of Nineveh. I know you relented, but here's a choice. Kill me or do it. One of the two. Well, he doesn't do either. Yet. By the way, bargaining with God is a stupid proposition. <clears throat> what did the Lord say? How did he react to this? So, Exodus 32-34 have been preparing the reader for Jonah's ironic identification with Moses and for a dramatic appeal to rescinding God's mercy on Nineveh and instead judge them for the sake of king and country, to be honest with you. That's his mindset. The Lord replied, and the Lord shows his, I mean, the guy just went face to face with you, God. Now, someone gets up in your face and, and gives you this edict, how are you going to reply? Well, we, we usually are not slow to anger. Are you kidding me? You pulled out in front of me. Are you kidding me? Someone does something against you and you instantly get mad and don't like them. And today you still even maybe have used the term hate them in a sense. Regardless, Jonah has been right face to face with God here, figuratively speaking. He said, you need, to, you need to relent of your relenting. Get that? You need to relent of your relenting and judge. Either you do that or you kill me. There's the choice. What are you going to do? Well, praise God, you and I aren't God. Oh, that's easy. Done. Next. But he didn't do that. Jonah, God looked at Jonah and said, do you have a good reason to be angry? What does that mean? By the way, our English versions are really muddled up with what this is actually trying to state. The, the translations differ considerably regarding the precise meaning of this verse. So let's get that on the table. I understood? It's hard in Hebrew to understand it. But it's highly possible that what he's saying, is your anger that intense? 
Do you really hate them that bad that you would die if they don't get judged? And, and that's the question. It's fair to say that the translation offered here understands the verb to convey the idea of doing something well, thoroughly, or utterly. So you're, doing, you're angry, you're utterly angry. That's what he's saying. This is about the intensity of Jonah's anger because he asked God to kill him. Let me ask you, how important is your life to you? The childhood game, truth or dare, the word, cross my heart, hope to stick a needle. That was so dumb. But then that what we all said? I promise I am so serious about this that I would die first. Right? Well, that's where, that's where he's at. That's the intensity and the seriousness of his issue here. God's purpose all along, by the way. Let me ask you, has God been merciful to Jonah? Yes or no? Why is he being merciful to him? Is it possible God still loves him and is trying to correct him? And the whole point of all of this is to correct him. I'm just going to throw this out. This is a guess, has nothing. This is not from thus saith the Lord, okay? But is it possible that if Jonah would have went there in the first place, God would have eradicated them? I'm asking, is it possible? Is it possible that the whole point of all of this story was to teach Jonah, you need to have mercy like I have mercy. And you don't. I think it's highly possible. And by the way, if you don't think that it's possible that the whole purpose of this is for teaching Jonah a lesson, then Jonah doesn't need to be written in the Scripture. Because in the end, who is, Jonah, who is God dealing with? Who is he dealing with? This whole chapter. Jonah. He's correcting him. He's teaching him. Is God a God of complete sovereignty? Well, then why did God do all this? One of the reasons has to be to teach and train and grow Jonah. Did it work? Here's the deal. I don't know. All I can tell you is Jonah is found in Scripture. How did he know all of those things that went on? How many understand that? So we don't know what happens to Jonah. What we do know is God uses him as a symbol of his own ministry. What does that mean? I don't know. But Jonah just doesn't go off into the sunset quietly because he's brought up in the Gospels again. So something we don't know, someday we will, but I will tell you, Jonah's being taught seminary right now. That's what's going on with Jonah. God is teaching him. So, God's initial reaction to Jonah's rebellious resignation is a positively tender kindness. 
which then sets about bringing the sulky Jonah to a proper self-examination. So we will get to that later, but we want to continue with the significance of this. I think it's so important we do that, and then we're off to the next, all right? We'll never get through this today. I can tell you that. <clears throat> the author of Jonah understands the prophet's experience as an illustration of Jeremiah chapter 18, which itself, Jeremiah 18, is an extension of Exodus chapter 32 through 34. Isn't it cool how that all of a sudden Bible comes all together? Because why? What brings the scripture all together in uniform? God. God's the main person, right? All these stories about Jonah, about Moses, about David, about Samuel, about Jeremiah, and you, you can name it. All of them. It doesn't matter. They're really stories about God. Amen? Every one of them is showing who God is. It's unfortunate that we as humans look at the characters and not the purpose of those characters. And usually we do that to make ourselves feel better about our sins. I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. But here, Jeremiah 18. Did, Jonah, did Moses feel that the kingdom that God promised is at stake if he wipes out all of Israel at the base of Sinai? Yes or no? Absolutely. Did God threaten to wipe them all out? Absolutely. Did God relent? Yes. Why? Why? The song, I'm going to give you a hint. If there is no Israel, there is no God with us. Israel is to be a blessing to this world through Christ. Amen. And so Moses, does Moses know all that? Moses probably doesn't know all that, but he loves God. And he knows that he's promised them a people. So what does, God, what does Moses do? Mo, Moses said, God, please relent. Relent on the basis of what? You will not have kingdom Israel without relenting right now. Does Jonah feel like he's the, doing the exact same thing? You will not have kingdom Israel unless you relent right now and destroy them. Why? Because not too far from Jonah's experience in Nineveh, guess where Nineveh is found? What happens? Nineveh is Assyria, by the way. What happens to Israel? Do you realize that Israel is never known again apart from the Assyrian attack? It's gone. Gone. It's done. Israel and Judah. How many understand Israel and Judah? The separate kingdoms. That separate kingdom is, is spread all the way through Assyria. And, 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 and by the way, we all know what takes place in Assyria, right? There's a book written about it. They want to eradicate them. It's like all these guys want to eradicate Israel. 
Have you noticed that? What's, what, what story is that? In Assyria, some guy, a noose. Anybody know? Very good. One person got it. Come on, I know you know this. Who wanted to eradicate? Who was the first Hitler in the scripture? Besides Pharaoh. Was Mordecai one? Haman one? Okay. Mordecai was the good guy, right? Now you know the story? Okay. So we've got this. I mean, there's nothing new, but I will tell you this. We aren't told of people coming back from Assyria in hordes like we are knowing that Judah comes back from Babylon and builds it again. How many understand that? Judah came back. Does Israel? Not that we're aware of. By the way, did God ever want two kingdoms? No, that's man's idea. Judah comes back to Jerusalem, right? Set up their kingdom. Regardless, this is, king, this is kingdom at stake. Exodus 32-34, Joel 2, 12-17, you can write these down to read them. We'll get to another one this, later on this morning in Nahum. But Jonah 4, 1-4, when we read them all together, there is an establishment of a critical connection between Israel's fate and the fate of nations. Over and over it's talked about. Moses hinted at it in, Joel, or in, in Exodus 32.12. Joel stated it more clearly in his text, Joel chapter 2. He called the priests, Joel did, and ministers of God to weep and suggest that they plead that God have mercy for these. He says, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn. A byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God if we're going to eradicate them? Joel, Jonah, Nahum, Exodus, all of them are dealing with the same issue at the very foundation. And that is the kingdom of Israel. How many see this? It's obvious. Every text is talking about that. This becomes central in Jonah Four, one through four. Why? Well, let me ask you this. If Israel's prophet Jonah, and by the way, was Israel's prophet Jonah, yes or no? Yes. If Israel's prophet Jonah just prophesied that they would enhance the kingdom, did they enhance the kingdom? Yes or no? Absolutely. They're all excited about it. It's the biggest it's ever been since Solomon. Now God's prophet to Israel, Jonah, goes to Israel's enemy, Nineveh, so that God's anger will go against them. Why? Expand the kingdom. But he goes there, and what do they do? <laughs> so when Jonah goes back to Israel, how's that going to go? How many understand the text? What's going on? Israel go, Jonah goes back to Israel and said, Hey guys, they repented. <laughs> Off with his. What are you doing? You weren't supposed to preach that well. I'm taking liberties here. But how many understand that? 
Israel's enemy. Israel does not want its enemy to succeed and certainly does not want to have God's mercy on them. And Jonah, Israel's prophet at that time, comes back to Israel and they repented. How's that going to go for Jonah? And to be honest with you, if, if he doesn't, if God doesn't kill him there, do you think it's possible that in his mind they're going to kill him there? I mean, there's a lot to this that we have to understand. God uses Nineveh in multiple ways. In the end, God uses Nineveh to do some disciplining of Jonah. Amen? Why do the heathen grow? Well, does God's people need discipline? Yes or no? Absolutely. Do we all need correction and direction in our life? Absolutely. Do we need somebody greater than us to tell us what to do? Absolutely. Did, Jonah, did God do that with Jonah? Jonah, I'm going to teach you, and I'm going to teach you, and teach you, and teach you, and teach you. Not only did God use Nineveh to teach Jonah, but what else did God's mercy to Nineveh, how was it used to teach somebody else? I mean, this is far-reaching, folks. God's discipline of Jonah, his relenting and mercy to Nineveh, to use Nineveh to wipe, to, to overtake Israel. Why do you think Joel is praying to God to relent his judgment on, Israel, or on Judah? Why do you think he's doing that? Because what has already happened by Joel has happened with Jonah. They did not repent, Israel, or Israel did not repent. And what did God use the ones that did repent as a tool to judge the ones that didn't repent? Say, what are you talking about? How many know what I'm talking about? Here's the deal. God used the repentant Gentiles, Nineveh, to teach Judah by destroying Israel, you had better what? Repent. Israel didn't repent. Nineveh, Assyria came in and destroyed them. Joel is screaming, guys, look! God is using Nineveh not only for Israel, he's also using it for Judah. And frankly, he's using it for us. It is multifaceted. That's why Joel's screaming, repent, repent. And I don't, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know why they didn't repent, but they didn't. They loved their sin more than they loved their God. Let me ask you, do we love this country more than we love our God? Well, the way it is now, probably not. 
what about anything apart from God? So we are dealing with on Sunday morning, and I tell you what, this is really important, something called Christian nationalism. How many have ever heard of Christian nationalism and neo-Calvinism? Some of you have, some of you have not. There is a movement afoot to literally take up arms and overtake a country to be a Christian kingdom. And we're listening to a guy advocating that. Because I'm advocating that? Absolutely not. <laughs> but he gets so mad at people who say, I love, I believe in democracy. Because he wants a theocracy. Does that make sense? I will tell you, he's right in one aspect. We should not love our country more than we love God. That's true. But God has put us in this country, and we certainly should love our country. Amen? And I thank God every day for the freedom to be able to serve God freely in this country. I don't know how long it'll last, but I'm thankful we have it now. Regardless, that nationalism was in Jonah's time. How many understand that? They were fighting for the kingdom of God. That was a theocracy, quote unquote, at least some semblance of it, it was supposed to be. Regardless, that's not where we live today. We live today in a country, in a world that is absolutely anti-God. And we are simply voices in this country and in this world to tell people who God is and what He has done for us. Amen? That's who God, that's who we are. That's what we are to do. And when someone comes to repentance, we should say what? Amen. Amen. Amen and amen and amen and amen. Why? Our job is not to set up a theocracy. Our job is to be aliens in this world and be ambassadors for God in this world. To love one another, serve one another, pray for one another, and pray to God He gives mercy to others. They lived in a theocracy type of life in their minds. Totally different. How many see the differences, by the way? Very different. Isaiah is another passage. I'm not going to take time to go through it, but if you want to read another text that deals with the same thing, it's Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 6. He does a good job. Listen to me, you islands. It starts out, hear this, you distant nations. You know what? I'm going to read it. I'll read it. Six verses. Is that all right? All right. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow. A concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. 
But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand. And my reward is with my God. And now the Lord said, He who formed me in the womb to be the servant, to bring Jacob back to himself and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for me to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the what? Gentiles. Why? That my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That memo was missed because God was starting to make his name known among the Gentiles with Jonah, was he not? And he did. Now, we'll introduce you to another prophet. Jo Jonah and Joel are not the only minor prophets who allude to Exodus chapter 34. I told you we would get to Nahum shortly. Nahum appealed to this traditional confession as well. Nahum highlights that part of the confession that Jonah and Joel omit. God's justice. God's judgment. Since Nahum's prophecy deals with Nineveh's destruction after Jonah's 8th century setting, it serves us as a counterpoint to the book of Jonah. This is particularly evident in Jonah's and Nahum's complementary quotations of the traditional Israelite creed. The quotations that are found in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. They are this. God, a deity compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, full of mercy and faithfulness, who administers mercy to thousands of generations, who forgives offenses, crimes, and immorality, but will certainly not acquit the guilty, who applies the punishment due the fathers to the children and the children grandchildren, to the third generation, to the fourth, and to the fourth generation. Jonah omits, will certainly acquit the guilty. For good reason. He didn't. He did acquit, right? He said, no, I'm, I don't want God to acquit the guilty. But Nahum says, he uses the same text. He says, God will certainly not acquit the guilty. In other words, what? I will discipline them. I will destroy them, God says. Nahum clearly talks about the judgment that's going to happen to Nineveh. And by the way, the same people that judge Judah is who? Who was it? Help me out. Starts with a B. Babylon, right? God uses Babylon to judge Judah. Guess who he uses to judge Nineveh? Babylon. Babylon comes and destroys Nineveh. Or is it God that destroys Nineveh? And by the way, Babylon gets destroyed too, right? I mean, God is a God of unbelievable wonder, is He not? And to see Nahum 
which is basically the anti-Jonah, although very similar, Nahum sees the judgment of Nineveh. Jonah does not see the judgment of Nineveh. And by the way, that's Jonah or Nahum 1 verse 3 is where that's found. <clears throat> One author says it this way. I think he does a great job. Jonah misconstrued God's mercy toward Nineveh as a denial of his justice and a betrayal of the covenant to Israel. Nahum clarified, however, that in reality, God's act of clemency was simply his patient grace, reserving judgment until Nineveh had ample opportunity to proceed from momentary repentance to a permanent change of character. Did that happen? We know that within a two generations, or even a generation, that was gone. That repentance was absolutely gone. It also postponed the destruction that Nineveh might serve as God's instrument for disciplining Israel, and in fact, Judah also. In a sense, Israel and Assyria shared a parallel experience with God's patient grace. Moses persuaded God to postpone the punishment of Israel's idolatry so that Israel could serve as a display of divine grace to the nation. Hezekiah persuaded God to postpone Jerusalem's destruction so that the city's deliverance could be a testimony to all the nations. In parallel manner, Nineveh was spared in the book of Jonah so that she could serve God's purpose as a disciplinary rod. Over and over and over and over again, we see over and over again, God chooses when and how to discipline. And none of it is our up to us at all. Nor should we be angry or pleased. Angry that it didn't happen, pleased that it did happen. For all of us deserve God's judgment. But instead, you that are sitting here have been given God's mercy. Praise God for that. We'll close with two important theological points that emerge from this. Number one, Jonah's concern regarding divine justice were not completely dismissed. God ensured that justice was served. However, God allowed abundant time for their true repentance and continued repentance. And it obviously never happened. His wrath patiently waited as His grace ran His course. God's people, however, often grow impatient for God's justice, not realizing that instant justice serves neither God nor humanity's interest. How do we know that? The Lord is not slack as some men count slackness. Amen. 2 Peter chapter 3. Second, Jerusalem and Nineveh illustrate the inverse relationships that exist between Israel and the nations. On the one hand, God spared Israel for the sake of the nations because universal blessing and salvation came through Israel. And according to my script, the scripture that I read, Jesus, when he comes, will stand in Israel and make this world all new. Amen.
But on the same token, God uses Nineveh's and the Assyrians and the Babylons to discipline his chosen people. So here's the deal. You ever been in conflict with an unsaved person? Has anybody ever been in conflict with an unsaved person? Did God make a mistake for that confrontation? Or does God want to use that to strengthen and grow you? Amen? That's exactly what this text is practically telling us today for our understanding, the principle. Does that make sense? When we shake our heads at the nonsense at what's going on in our world, we better dig and grow stronger in our faith to help them out of that world. Amen. Because nothing good will come out of any kind of ism apart from Christianity-ism. It's all evil. God spared the nations for the sake of Israel because their hostility to Israel refined their faith in God and provided a context in which Israel could learn and demonstrate mercy for their enemies. Is God going to set up his kingdom, yes or no? Is it up to me to make that kingdom happen? Jonah thought so. And there's a lot of people today that think so. That's up to God. I am just an ambassador to show what Jesus did so God can redeem their soul. Amen? I'm to love them so they can see Christ in me and glorify His name. My life is a slave to Jesus Christ. And everything else takes second seat at best. With Jonah, his love for country and the kingdom made him so mad that he fought with God. Wow. Talk about idolatry. We all got it. There is something in our lives that is an idol that needs to be put back in its place. Subservient to Christ's Lordship. Amen. We can do that for our own lives. Christ will do that for the kingdom. Amen. Mr. Zarin, can you close us in a word of prayer, please? Thank you.